Welcome! How the hell is everybody? Oh man, we got one today for you. First and foremost, this podcast, like all of my podcasts, is brought to you by my patrons. Patrons are people that sign up and donate a monthly recurring sum to help support the podcast via Patreon. Thank you so much. I'm going to shout out some people that support the podcast, and then we're going to get on our way because I have a feeling we have a lot to cover today, and I don't know whether to be excited or depressed at what's going to be going down the pipe because we're definitely taking our red pill today for sure with Whitney Webb. First and foremost, this podcast brought to you by my kind friends over at Masterworks. I love Masterworks. I have an account with Masterworks. It is a wonderful company that allows you to get access and investing in priceless works of art by, well, they're not priceless. They have prices, which hopefully continue to go up. (laughs) Masterworks makes it possible for you to invest in shares of artwork. Personally, I've uh, invested in one of their Banksy's, uh, which I think is awesome because I don't have $2 million to go out and buy a Banksy uh, on the art market somewhere. And so you can uh, sign up and buy a portion of uh, a piece of art, and they have... You know, Picassos, they have Monet's, they have all these famous uh, pieces of art that really, let's be serious, you and I would never have access to anywhere else. Uh, And I just think it's a wonderful idea. I think it's a great platform uh, to make these things investable for people that normally wouldn't have access to them. I know at least while the market's been getting crushed this year, um, you know, I've watched my investment appreciate uh, in the double digits, which has been great. You know, I was doing a lot of reading over the last couple years about the art world being a good inflation hedge. We'll see if that continues to hold up. Um, But I truly like Masterworks a lot, and I'm happy to recommend them, and I'm happy they support the podcast. You can get their link. It's in my podcast description. They actually have a waiting list to join right now, but if you use code QTR, you can skip to the front of the line. So check that out. It's in my podcast description. This podcast also brought to you by my friends over at Market Rebellion. You know John and Pete Najarian from CNBC. I know them from sitting around drinking beer at a dinner table. The point is we all know them. They are wonderful guys. They've created an excellent community over at Market Rebellion, especially if you're an active trader, a day trader, an options trader. These guys are OGs. They were on the floor in Chicago a couple of decades ago, and before that they were in the National Football League. Uh absolutely experts in the world of options and market rebellion is a great service that really you know aims to look at the market through a different lens just like we do um and will give you great insights uh great analysis great technical analysis over there and i'm not even a technical analysis guy um but well worth it john and pete will hook you up with a free trial anything you want just tell them qtr sent you That link is in my podcast description. This podcast also brought to you by my friends over at the Sang Lucci Steam Room. As I said on my last podcast, man, if you link up with Sang Lucci and the Steam Room and you link up with Market Rebellion, you pretty much have the options world covered, in my opinion. The Steam Room is a wonderful piece of beautifully, aesthetically beautiful software. This is what happens when you don't have a script and you're just trying to tell the truth. Sometimes you wind up like Joe Biden. You just forget what you're saying and... You know, you wish somebody would just hand you an ice cream cone. <laughs> Sang Lucci and Wall Street. Jesus, the steam room. I love these guys. These guys were tracking unusual options activity before anybody else was doing it. When I joined FinTwit in 2012, it's been a decade now. Lucci and Wall Street Jesus 
we're in there throwing elbows and running the show. And so the Steam Room is a great community, especially, again, for options traders. If you want to track flow, these guys are experts in market psychology uh, and just all around great people. All of these people I know personally, I like them. Uh, they're honest people to do business with. And so I have no problem recommending them. If you want to try out Lucci or Wall Street Jesus's Steam Room, send them a message. Tell them I sent you. They will make sure you get a free trial, whatever you want. This podcast also brought to you by my exclusive gold and silver providers over at JM Bullion. JM Bullion is the only place I buy my gold and silver bullion from. And QTR podcast listeners have their own rep over there, which means if you're not comfortable ordering online, if you have questions about buying gold and silver, if you have questions about what it's like to buy through the mail, if you have questions about inventory, you want to talk to an actual person, email Laura, L-A-U-R-A at jmbullion.com. And she would be more than happy to help you out. There's also a link to jmbillion.com in my podcast description. Love those guys. Great place to buy gold and silver bullion. This podcast also brought to you by my friends over at Rebel Capitalist. George Gammon has teamed up with Chris McIntosh, Lynn Alden, and Brent Johnson to help you preserve your wealth in a world of -of out-of-control central banks. I love the Rebel Capitalist forums. I love looking at their mock portfolios. I love their live Q&As. If you like this podcast and you have more than, you know, the 90 brain cells that I have and you actually want a little bit more information as to how the bowels of the quantitative easing system works, check out George and Rebel Capitalist Pro. Any of these guys, tell them I sent you. They will make sure you get a deal. They'll make sure that you get a free trial. Whatever you want, tell them the Q-Man said it's all good. It's all good. And check out the Doomberg Substack. Those guys are also in my podcast description. Let us get on with the show. Normal disclaimers apply. I'm not a registered investment advisor. I hold no licenses, no registrations. Generally have no idea what I'm talking about. Today, we're going to be going down a rabbit hole. All of this is non-binding, okay? This is open communication for the purposes of dialogue and getting as much out there into the public discourse as we can. Some of it will be right. Some of it will be wrong. Some of it will be in between. Consult your therapist with any issues. I don't know what to tell you, folks. We've got Whitney Webb here today. Strap in and hold the fuck on. Whitney Webb has been a professional writer, researcher, and journalist since 2016. She's written for several websites and from 2017 to 2020 was a staff writer and senior investigative reporter for Mint Press News. She currently writes for the wonderful Unlimited Hangout and contributes to Bitcoin Magazine, The Last American Vagabond, and several other media outlets. But I will also add here at the end, she is a viral like youtube sensation i have watched whitney whitney hasn't been on in like two years we've tried to set it up a couple of times we both have busy schedules everybody has been asking for her but she has just absolutely taken off she's all over youtube uh she's getting some much deserved praise and attention and i couldn't be happier for her and i'm so stoked to have you on whitney webb what's up hey it's great to be back thanks for having me back on it's been a long time huh yeah, I know. It doesn't feel like it, but yeah, I, I realized uh, <laughs> when you reached out recently that it had been quite a while, so uh, really happy to reconnect. I think that just means that we're both staying busy, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's fair to say. I've definitely had a busy couple of years, and I'm sure you have too. If I could um, show you the list of 
people of the list of requests that I have gotten to have you back on the podcast, it is it's out of control. It is like probably <laughs> probably hundreds and hundreds of requests, which is crazy because I don't even think I have hundreds and hundreds of listeners. <laughs> <laughs> No, that well, that's great. Well, here I am, so let's get into it. Yeah, let's get into it. So when we were talking, I think last time a couple years ago, you were still writing your book about the Epstein saga. So why don't you just run through for everybody what's going on? I know the book is finished, and uh, we could talk about that, and then talk about you know what's in the books. I, there's two of them, right? Yeah. And uh, let's. Uh, what does everybody need to know? All right, yeah, so the books, yeah, they're finally done. It was originally planned to be one book, and so people were like, Whitney, why is this taking so long? Well, part of that is because I ended up writing a a massive book that got chopped into two books. So I was writing two instead of one. And I also, like, did things like I had a baby last year and all other sorts of stuff going on, and, of course, the world's been pretty insane the past two years, so that hasn't helped things. But, yeah, I finally got it done. Um, and so the, the title of the book is One Nation Under Blackmail, Volume 1 and Volume 2. Um, if you order directly from the publisher, which is Trine Day, T-R-I-N-E Day, uh, .com, you can get both volumes now. Uh, Amazon and other booksellers are currently shipping Volume 1. And not that long from now, on October 22nd, Volume 2 will be available from Amazon and, and everywhere. So, um, you know, that's pretty much the... The basic stuff aside from what the books are about. Right. So um, I think the first time I ever came on QTR was to talk about my um, work on the Epstein case at Mint Press News. I did yeah. a four-part series. Uh, it seems like forever ago now <laughs> uh, at the end of 2019. And, and that was a four-part series, yeah. So the first two parts of that series were not really on Epstein at all. It was about uh, you know, pedophilia scandals or sexual blackmail scandals that predated Epstein. And then uh, parts three and four were more focused on the Epstein case specifically. And then after that series, I did like some different spinoffs and investigated some different stuff, including uh, like the Maxwell family in general, like Ghislaine Maxwell's two sisters who were very involved in um, intelligence linked tech companies and all sorts of other stuff. And a lot of that ended up getting folded into the book as well. But the book is actually, you know, was originally intended to be an expansion of that original four part series, but I wanted to be really thorough and maybe I was a little too thorough uh, (laughs) because it's like about a thousand pages, volumes one and two together. It's a lot of material and it's pretty dense. So in a nutshell, uh, why would these books interest people? Uh, Well, I I could do a pretty long spiel about that to be honest, but I'll try and keep it short. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So, Uh, Basically, as I'm sure your audience and and you are aware, the mainstream narrative about Epstein is that he was the one naughty billionaire, he was taken down so everything's fine, and the only part of Epstein's career or, you know, his timeline anyone needs to worry about is from 2000 to 2006 and it's sex crimes in that period, nothing else, right? So... There's, there's a couple things that my book uh, does really well. One is it totally reveals that the Epstein was in a, an anomaly narrative, is complete bunk. He's not an anomaly. This is how a lot of people in that particular social tier 
and social milieu he was inhabit inhabiting operate. And I think that's part of why no one said anything for so long. I mean, you even had an early 2020 tacit admissions by people like John McCain's wife, Cindy McCain, that everyone knew what Epstein was doing. I mean, that's a direct quote from her, right? So why didn't these people say something? It's because it's not weird. Uh, but beyond that, um, the other thing is that this very narrow window of focus on Epstein, um, I think is very important to um, preventing the case from getting out of control. What do I mean by that? I would say that based on my investigation, and this is you know fleshed out in, in both volumes, uh, that Epstein was really more a financial criminal uh, and then later began dabbling in sex crimes. I think his financial crimes outweigh his sex crimes probably in terms of like the scale of them which is saying a lot uh and i know that's saying a lot but the evidence is there and i think that's a big part of the reason that he was never held held accountable uh was because of his uh financial activities uh, and his connections and those financial connections continued to you know serve him well up until his um his arrest in 2019 and there's ultimately a lot uh, left to be uncovered than what I dug up. And so basically what I was doing was trying to tell not just the early history of Epstein, but this particular network that he um, appears to have joined and that it later enabled his activities. And that particular network, which is uh, discussed in, in volume one, you know, predates Epstein by decades. Um, and, and it's basically a group of people that have engaged in, in sexual blackmail uh, for a very long time. But that's just, you know, one of one of the things they do. Uh, you know, they're mainly a, a group of financial criminals that are tied to both intelligence and organized crime. Um, and it's um, it's it's a bit complicated, but I think I did a pretty, pretty good job of making it digestible for people, uh, though it is pretty detail oriented and, and, and dense in parts. But, you know, it's basically um, volume one is, you know, several decades of of crime and how sexual blackmail uh, in financial fraud are undercurrents of pretty much every well-known American political scandal um, since, well, I don't know, the 40s on, probably. Jeez. And, yeah, and so basically the conclusion here is that Epstein is not an anomaly. He's business as usual. And the government that we have right now in our financial system are run by organized criminals. That's basically, um, you know, it, it, the book is a detailed case for that a thousand page like legal case basically so, uh, trying to prove that point so what changes the dynamic that you know has sees the government turn on him is it just public outcry that does it like in sunlight yeah so i don't really have all the answers to why epstein was arrested in 2019 i did a really deep dive on epstein pretty much up until his first arrest so most of the book stops at around 2007 2008 i did not get into epstein's uh, apparent role in aspects of the 2008 financial crash including the collapse of bear stearns um and i wish i had had time to get into that i think it could probably be its own book because it seems like epstein had a <laughs> had an outside outsized role there for sure. Um, that raises a lot of questions when you, you know, examine it in the light of this is a guy tied to intelligence. What is he doing? Um, basically collapsing Bear Stearns. Um, it's a bit weird. And then his, uh, he gets like a, an apparent bailout from the fed. So he didn't actually lose money when Bear Stearns collapsed and all other sorts of weird unanswered questions there. And, you know, that's 10 years before he's even arrested. Right. And so from there he hops to JP Morgan from there, he hops to, to Deutsche bank. 
And I think it's particularly difficult to unravel those periods of his financial activity, because if you think about in the last couple of years and the people who have turned up dead in relation with the Epstein case, the only innocent person to die was the son of the judge that was going to oversee the Epstein Deutsche Bank case. Everyone else that turned up dead uh, was either Epstein or a co-conspirator like Jean-Luc Brunel or the guy that Epstein was meeting with at the Clinton White House in the 90s named Mark Middleton, who died really suspiciously earlier this year in May. Um, but in terms of people not involved with the case, you know, he's the only innocent person to die. And it was related to the Deutsche Bank case, which, as far as I'm aware, hasn't really uh, didn't really result in much. Right. Mm -hmm. So uh, there's obviously a lot of the financial crimes post his, uh, you know, post him being outed as a as a pedophile and sex trafficker that need a lot of unraveling. So I think, you know, some of the answers to why he was taking down in 2019 likely lie in a mix of that. And I would argue the other side of it may be related to his relationship with Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, whose uh, ascent to power was controversial, resulted in uh, the removal of a guy, uh, the previous crown prince who was very close to then CIA director or uh, CIA director under Obama, John Brennan. So I think there's a lot of possibility of um, intelligence-linked uh, factionalism sort of resulting in, in why Epstein was too inconvenient for certain people to stay around. Um, but I think it was definitely not the you know official narrative that, oh, we care what these girls think or we want to we make their voices heard, so we're taking down this guy. I don't think it happens that way. I think... Uh, I mean, if you look at Robert Maxwell, for example, and the end of his life, and they, you know, even even his own family, like Ghislaine Maxwell, say that he was murdered, right? Uh, but the official narrative is that it was a suicide or an accident or something like that. Um, and But he was too inconvenient for too many people at the end of his life, Robert Maxwell, right? He was involved with numerous intelligence agencies. He, um, his financial empire was collapsing. He had all sorts of problems going on. He hired um, a controversial uh, private investigative firm, Kroll Associates, nicknamed the CIA of Wall Street, yeah, uh, to Kroll. track down... Yeah, to track down people he claimed were trying to ruin him. There's all sorts of intrigue around the death of Robert Maxwell, and I think it would be naive, naive to think that the uh, arrest and subsequent death of Jeffrey Epstein is any different than that. I think we have um, – I, I definitely don't think we have the full story on, on that at all. But I don't get in that into the book because, you know, I, <laughs> I – a thousand pages it took me to get to, you know, 2006 roughly with Epstein, so – yeah, I'm gonna maybe I'm I'll gonna, do more later, but <laughs> I'm gonna ask a question against my better judgment because I feel like the more you talk, the more likely somebody's gonna burst in through the door of my 400 square foot apartment and strangle me with telephone cord. <laughs> oh my god! No. Putting that aside, <laughs> hey, listen, if I die during the recording of this podcast, just know that it sucks and I'm pissed. All right, <laughs> no, but listen, <laughs> can can you you mentioned that like there was a uh, there was like a, a network, you know for decades prior to Epstein and that, you know, he was just kind of uh, par for the course that had already been laid out. Can you just tell me a little bit about that and how far back it dates? Yeah, sure. So I basically trace it. I mean, in theory, you could probably trace it earlier if you wanted, but where I thought it was the most logical, logical <clears throat> place to really start it off was this um, operation that happened in the U S domestically 
during World War II. It was called Operation Underworld. And this is where you have the Office of Naval Intelligence along with the Office of Strategic Services, which is the precursor to the CIA, uh, basically get in bed with organized crime, New York organized crime, New York City, um, as a way to, quote unquote, gather intelligence. And the justification for this was they wanted uh, intelligence from local dock workers because they were worried about sabotage of ships in harbors. In, uh, on the Atlantic coast, mainly in New York, right, in that area. And in order to make a deal with the dock workers, you had to go through the dock workers' union, and at that time the union was controlled by the mob. And it had been controlled by the mob for some time, and so as a consequence of that, uh, the, the power base of the Democratic Party in New York City were unions, and the unions were all dominated by the mob at this point. So, so too, is the New York Democratic Party. And the, the guy that was mayor of New York during this time, a guy named William O'Dwyer, um, was, you know, it's a matter of record that he was very close to notorious gangsters of that period, like Frank Costello, among, among other types. Um, and for people that don't know, he's one of the uh, inspirations for The Godfather from, of the novel and, of course, the, the well-known film. So definitely a, a big-name gangster, right? So that type of nexus was very prominent in these political circles. And at this point in time with Operation Underworld, they start to make a, a formal alliance with intelligence services. And, you know, this was justified as being something like, you know, out of wartime necessity. Oh, we're just doing it because it's the war, right? But the war ends and the association continues. And so if you look at, for example, um, after the CIA's made in the late 40s, you look at like their assassination teams. And in the 50s and 60s, you'll find a lot of organized crime guys there. And it's very evident that that association continued for some time. And some of this is confusing to people um, about why, you know, intelligence might do this. But if you understand, um, as I explained in the book, the people who were behind the OSS and then later the early directors of the CIA, people like Alan Dulles, very close ties to Wall Street. I mean, really, their boss is Wall Street and not, you know, nationals. You know, it, in, in terms of, like, who, what these guys' motivations are, the early leaders of U.S. intelligence, they're more motivated by their um, financial um, connections to very powerful families or the early powerful Wall Street banking families or dynasties uh, than they are to necessarily protecting American national security or the uh, the best interest of the United States. These are guys that were big big time lawyers for some of the richest people in the U.S. or or Wall Street. Like in the case of Alan Dulles, he's you know a lawyer for Sullivan and Cromwell. Um, and but also in the case of people like um, you know Bill Donovan, who ran the OSS, you know very deep ties again to the oligarch families. And so you look at someone, you know, some of the early moves made by the CIA. For example, um, in the early 50s, there was a coup d'état that was planned by the CIA in Guatemala uh, to overthrow their democratically elected government. And this was done on at the behest of United Fruit Company, which later becomes Chiquita Banana. Uh, but that particular company had a very close relationship with the CIA for a very long time. Um, and oddly enough, they come up a lot in the book because they later get taken over by the uh, group of people around Leslie Wexner, who's uh, Jeffrey Epstein's uh, be best known benefactor, I guess you could say. So definitely sure. a long, um, you know, very interesting history um, with that particular company. But it's just an example of how the CIA, from its earliest days, 
has really acted, you know, at the behest of either corporate America or, you know, the powers that be, uh, the oligarchy of the United States more than necessarily what's in the U.S.'s best uh, interest, right, or in the in the best interest of the American public, as it were. And, you know, ultimately what these guys are interested in and, and, and you know, these banking families or Wall Street, you know, as a collective entity uh, tend to be very much interested in a lot of the same things that organized crime is interested, right? Uh, getting rich and staying rich. Yeah, of course. Uh, getting a... power and main, and maintaining power. So the idea that they would align themselves, when you understand that part of the equation, it makes things make a lot more sense, and, and especially in terms of why that association would continue, not just continue, but deepen uh, after World War II concludes. And as I note in the book, too, a lot of these uh, major factions of those organized crime um, syndicates uh, had a major role in the creation of uh, the state of Israel in the late 40s. They were very involved, for example, in arming the Haganah, the precursor to the IDF. And these are, you know, famous gangsters like Bugsy Siegel, uh, Mayor Lansky. Uh, they were very, very involved with that. And so these types of networks um, were also uh, pretty much baked in to Israel's nascent uh, intelligence agencies, you know, around the time that state was founded as well. And so a recurring thing sort of throughout the book when, when looking at this network is that you see a lot of, um, involvement in these particular activities, uh, most of which are illegal. You'll have, uh, a, a cooperating, uh, faction of us intelligence, uh, cooperating with a faction in, in Israeli intelligence. Uh, they pop up together all the time a, 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 along with British intelligence seems to pretty much almost always be there too in some capacity. Um, and this is, you know, going from things back from the 40s all the way to, you know, the 1980s with Iran-Contra and stuff like that. Um, so, you know, what I'm trying to do is show that that type of um, criminal activity, uh, this symbiosis between organized crime and intelligence is not something that just like disappeared into the ether sometime in like the 50s and 60s. Right. It's something that has conti that continues to define the power structure in the U.S. to this day, and so what I'm trying to show is the you know how it started and the continuity from the then to the now, which a lot of people don't understand. And part of that I think is because this same group, the same network, as I note in the book, uh, has been very influential in Hollywood for a very long time and in media. So this whole you know idea of glamorizing uh, organized crime as something of the past and uh, you know, giving it this this glamorous feel, but also like it's historical. It's not like that anymore. You know, that's sort of been per <laughs> perpetuated by by, you know, the media, which as I know, like, you know, groups like MCA, which later become Universal Studios and all of that are as tied to organized crime as they possibly could be. I mean, they couldn't be more connected to it than they are and have been, you know, for decades and decades and decades. And that's just one of them. Um, one of many examples, really. So, um, you know, at the end of the day, these guys have gotten away with so much for so long. I mean, they're basically untouchable. At least that's how I think um, they feel. And one of the ways that they've maintained power is through sex blackmail, right? So this is something that was originally developed by the mob. Um, but, you know, once in the 30s, really. So, like, well, before then, too. But... Uh, Mayor Lansky, for example, Mayor Lansky was involved in what had, I don't know if he did it directly, but he, someone working for him blackmailed J. Edgar Hoover, uh, the first director of the FBI. And we may have talked about this, you know, one of the first times I was on or something. <clears throat> Sorry about that. But, um, you know, you basically, 
have dirt on the head of the FBI and they, and you know, Hoover never goes after organized crime right. pretty much the whole time. He's director of the FBI, which is up until the early seventies, I believe. So, you know, by that point they're everywhere and there's not much you can do about it. Plus, you know, Hoover at the same time, after he was blackmailed, he got involved in blackmailing people too, because it's about power. Um, information is power, information and quote unquote intelligence are, you know, more or less, uh, the same thing. And so you have all sorts of crazy stuff go on. And some of the stuff that goes on, you know, um, the CIA, uh, there's factionalism there, right? It's not like a monolith either. There's groups in there that disagree with each other and compete with each other um, all the time. And so as a result of that competition, as I note in volume one, you have some groups that sort of offshoot and become private CIAs. Yeah. Or become private intelligence apparatus of, you know, uh, certain powerful, wealthy people. Um, one early example I note in the book, for example, is that during World War II, David Rockefeller apparently had his own personal like intelligence agency, basically. You know, so this is something that's that's happened before, and so you have you know, basically a proliferation of intelligence agencies no one knows about, and who are they working for? Right. Well, ultimately, uh, over time, all of this just becomes about business, but it becomes about illegal business, like illegal businesses and legal businesses intermingling. And so, um, you know, a lot of recurring stuff in the book has to do with um, offshore banking complexes and, and how those connect to these, um, you know, a lot of stuff about banks, a lot of stuff about drug trafficking, a lot of stuff about arms trafficking and, of course, human trafficking uh, to a lesser extent. But wow. a lot of this ultimately becomes, you know, about rackets, about business, um, and trying to keep those rackets expanding infinitely, um, and and you know, going on forever. That's, you know, I guess the <laughs> the really short version uh, of it. And so, you know, Epstein definitely fits um, into this group. Um, has it's not exactly easy to pinpoint. It, where he may have first encountered them but the way i judge it it seems like it was really pretty early on sometime in the 70s oh. and uh there's there's a lot um i mean there's a lot there so i've been talking for a while so i don't know if you want to you yeah. want to jump in or well ask a... i'm happy to report that i'm still alive i haven't been offed yet you know so we'll, we'll do momentary <laughs> I think you'll make it through the interview we'll, we'll check in every <laughs> but then after that you're completely fucked we'll do <laughs> We'll do pulse checks, you know, every 10 minutes just to make sure I'm still alive and breathing. Um, <laughs> I wanted to ask you uh, about, like, recent developments with uh, Epstein. Actually, I had another question, too, that just slipped my mind. It's it's insane to hear some of this stuff. But, I mean, once you, once you start to look at things like Operation Northwoods and you start to realize, like, you, you know, you view the actual documents – that were created to like put forth an idea like that. You just start to wonder like, man, really anything is possible. Anything is possible. And, uh, I'm trying to remember what my question was. I'll come back to it, but I did also well, want to ask about, mm -hmm. uh, go ahead. Did you have something to say? Well, I was just going to say when you say like, you know, anything is possible. What I would add to that is these people will stop at nothing to expand their money and their power. Right. And so in that sense, anything is possible. Yeah. Anyway, go on. What I wanted to ask about was related to new developments in the Epstein case. And I I thought I saw something yesterday or two days ago 
about whether or not he was an FBI, whether or not he was an informant. And he was. Yeah. The, and then, yeah, then I tried to find it again this morning before our interview and I couldn't find it. And I'm not sure if I saw it just randomly, like on like a side link somewhere or whatever. Um, so I wanted to get your thoughts on that and like get that out there for people, uh, the details that you have of that. And then also wanted to ask you if there was anything new related to, um, you know, his mysterious but not so mysterious death. And uh, also if you saw Ghislaine Maxwell's recent comments about Prince Andrew and, and his response to that. Okay. So I didn't, uh, if you're talking about Ghislaine Maxwell's recent comments that the pic, the famous picture of her Prince Andrew and Virginia Roberts is fake. That claim not has that been one. circulated for several years. So that's not a new claim. She just, just basically, sort of she basically that. claimed that they were like really, re- she did like an in prison interview. I guess somebody's making yeah, a documentary. Yeah. And mm-hmm. they were asking her about her relationship with him. And she was like, oh, you know, like, I consider him my dear friend. Like, we were the dearest of friends. And, and then they reached out to him for comment. And he's like, I don't even know her, you know, like, <laughs> of course. But I was just wondering if there's anything there that maybe I had missed. Uh, as far as I've seen, no, I mean, I don't I don't think you're going to get the real story from either of them. <laughs> if you ask them. Yeah. Uh, part of it's because, you know, they're trying to. Well, it's obviously different situations for for Andrew and for Ghislaine. I mean, one's in prison and one's not, um, right? So I think one of them is definitely interested in staying alive and also, to a lesser extent, but still probably important extent, trying to stay relevant <laughs> um, in the case of Ghislaine, right? So, you know, maybe that's why she's trying to play up that that connection. I really doubt that Prince Andrew wants to answer any Epstein related <laughs> of course not. questions at all, especially now that his brother's on, you know, there's the King of England. I think he's trying to, um, hope people forget sooner rather than later about the whole affair. That's what I would, um, that's what I would say as far as, um, new developments on Epstein's death itself. Um, I'm not familiar with that, uh, with anything new there. I mean, I think we're, it's pretty clear that they, um, it was just a, a total joke. Uh, you know, the idea that the cameras weren't working, the guards were asleep. Um, I don't know. I think William Barr at the time called it like a hurricane of screw ups or something like that was the term <laughs> he used. And that just doesn't, that just doesn't happen with someone like this. And the official story that he was like hung by, you know, suicide watch clothes or sheets, which are like paper thin, um, from a height that is shorter than his standing height. So he would have been, had to hang himself curled up in a ball. This is a big guy. Right. Yeah. I mean, Epstein wasn't a midget. Okay. So he has to be like curled up in a ball, hanging from something paper thin enough to, you know, to successfully hang himself. Yeah. Okay. Um, that's it, it, impressive if people believe that is true, you know, and then that. Yeah. Anyway, as far as I know, there's no new information beyond that. Maybe there is, but I don't really focus on the death so much. I'm trying to focus on what they haven't told us about his life. Right. right. So, you know, I'm I, not. I remember my question. Let me ask you real quick before I forget. Sure. again. You know, when you're talking about all this nefarious uh, intelligence action and, you know, the, the, the incessant grab for money and power which of course is very real you don't need to be uh you don't need to be a journalist to understand that you just have to have your eyes open um right my, my question was going to be you know who are the good guys uh you know who who would you trust all right so um i would say 
a lot of people look for the good guys. They either look for like leaders of a particular nation that say stuff they like or a particular politician that says stuff they like. Yeah, I don't see it that way. I see what's going on right now as sort of an us versus them thing. And if you're looking for good guys in today's world, it's going to be like regular people in your neighborhood and not someone like wheeled out in front of you uh, as like a celebrity or political savior uh, to our problems. So, you know, in my experience, it's just regular Americans. Is there, is there anybody the in government that in you would US. trust? Yeah, I mean, maybe, but I mean, I'm not going to take it to the bank, you know. It would be nice if there's a couple in there, but there's not enough of them to make a difference that are trustworthy. Who? Which, which agencies do you think are the most trustworthy as opposed to the least trustworthy? agencies you yeah mean like sure. federal agencies yeah, no i think it's exactly. all beyond help that's really? my view yeah i mean there might be people like at the lower levels that think they're like doing good stuff for the world and blah 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 and democracy and all of this stuff but no i mean at the upper levels they know it's a business it's a business yeah that's it's not about um well here's the thing that happened so um well, it, it, it happened before, but it's easiest to see, I guess, with Iran-Contra. Uh, so what was the motivation behind Iran-Contra, technically? It was that Bill Casey, the CIA director, uh, had his hands tied by Congress. Congress said you can't send lethal aid to the Contras in Nicaragua to fight against the Sandinistas who took over, right? Um, so Casey was like, okay, so how do we get around that? So the idea was, how do we finance covert operations that we don't tell Congress about with money? Uh, we have to get the money from somewhere. So where does the money come from? It comes from things like drug trafficking, arms trafficking. It's about uh, being able to finance, uh, sustainably finance black budgets um, so they can you know, do whatever they want without any sort of oversight. Um, and without having to ask uh, Congress or anyone else for the funds officially. Yeah. Right. So um, those always... parts. It, so, for example, if you get too far and you try and dismantle the CIA's drug trafficking apparatus, that's national security threats. That's a national security threat because it's integral to our national security to be able to finance our our covert operations all over the world. And one of the main, main ways we do that is uh, through the illegal trafficking of drugs, and it's true. And, um, and, I mean, even beyond that, you know, if you were to take the amount of money that flushes the finance, you know, if you were to take the, the drug illegal drug trade completely out of the equation, there's a bunch of banks that would collapse because a lot of financial institutions are dependent on it. Like from the fees they make by moving money around sure. and like money laundering and offshore banking and like all this stuff. I mean, it's like well, very would, much that, embedded in how things work today. And that, so you can't eliminate drug trafficking. And when so when people go to prison for drug trafficking, it, you know, it's either to pump full private prisons for prison labor um, or it's to stamp out the CIA's competition. Well, it would certainly it's an consolidation. It would, for it would them. certainly be, you know funny because not funny sad i said at the beginning of this podcast before you came on that like you know i don't i'm i don't know whether i'm gonna feel enlightened or depressed by the end of this conversation but it certainly would be like ironic because like all of the anti-money laundering and know your customer 
rules that have been put in place with banks where you know the regulators really uh have put a ton of pressure on banks to you know basically give up all of what goes on i mean the government has access to pretty much any transaction now over you know whatever a couple hundred dollars but i'm sure they could get yeah that's to keep the little people right what they view as the little people from money laundering that doesn't stop them i know that's what i'm saying that's what's so ironic (laughs) about it you know like i went to go get a bank check last year to pay taxes with literally asked for a check to be made out to the Department of the Treasury, right? Trying to do the right thing, trying to pay my taxes, like on time with a check, you know? And it was like, it was as if I had walked into the bank with like 20 kilos of cocaine. Like people were like, you know, had to talk to supervisors and this guy had to talk to that guy and this guy (laughs) needed approval. And it wasn't even a lot of money. Like, you know, it's just like, oh my God. And you know, there's also been times too, like, where I've been in Atlantic City. And, you know, obviously, if you're down at the casinos, like, sometimes you wind up with a lot of cash. And, like, you bring cash to the bank. They have banks down there. And, like, I go to deposit cash, and it's just, like, it's crazy. They're like, we need you to sign this extra thing. We need you to put your initials here. We need you, you know, where did the money come from? You know, I'm like, it came from a fucking casino. Like, where the fuck do you think it came from? Like, it's Atlantic (laughs) City, you dumbasses. You know, like, there aren't enough drugs in Atlantic City to fucking uh, come up with the, you know, this type of cash. Like, it's not even that much money. It's just that, like, it's just a very, like, you know, it's a rundown kind of impoverished area off the main strip, you know, if you're not in a casino. So it's just like, you know, it's crazy. It's crazy that it's you know, it has clamped down so much for retailing and you know, it's not, Yeah, and it's only clamping down more. I mean, I'm sure you've seen how many thousands of IRS agents they're planning to add and like the digital IRS stuff. And if they get CBDCs through the surveillance of that for tax, I mean, it's going to be, you think it's bad now. (laughs) People have no idea. I mean, they can track a lot of shit now, but But not all of it. Central bank digital currency, I always talk about what Andy Sheckman brought up with me is, you know, that it allows them to control the velocity of money too, right? They can yeah. say that you have X amount of money and you have to spend it by X this amount date, of time, it right? Exactly. Yeah. Or it's only earmarked for this, this, and this. You yeah, know, you can't just, spend it on things they say are bad for the environment or bad for your health or bad for whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's. It's next level. Let's talk about health. Let's talk about COVID. Um, because we're in a totally different spot than we were the last time we talked about COVID. You were one of a small few who warned uh, in advance of, I think right around the beginning of COVID was the last time we talked, who warned of you yeah. know draconian-style lockdowns. Um, They're going to take away your freedom. Yeah. yeah, infringement on civil liberties, while which is a difficult thing to do. I said this to George Gammon. It's a difficult thing to do at the time that all the shit is going down, there is a lack of information, and people are legitimately confused and scared. It is a very difficult thing to do to be that kind of beacon out in the mist that is saying, hey, you know, let's let's be careful here because once we give up ground, we're not getting it back. Nobody wants to fucking hear it then, right? No, so, it wasn't a popular claim then, uh, that's for sure. It was not easy to be early on that kind of stuff in 2020. It never is, but uh, here we are two no. years later, and all of a sudden, Whitney Webb started to make a whole lot of fucking sense, you know? So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What have you, what have you made of this whole mess? <clears throat> 
Oh, wow. That's an open-ended question. Um, yeah, it's a huge mess. It's a dangerous mess. I don't even, I don't even know where to really begin to be honest. There are so many reasons to be, um, would you like, would you like me to prompt you? Because <laughs> um, I can. Have you seen the video? Yeah, vi I mean, there, there's all sorts of stuff, I guess I would say. But the, the real, you know, one of the real threats that's coming down the pike now is the CBDC. I think they're going to try and push, shove that down people's throats, if not next year, the following year, 2023 right. or 2024. So if you think you're going to vote out the central bankers, please remind yourself how central banks work. <laughs> um, it, it's not a problem you're going to solve at the ballot box, right? So people need to get really smart about how you're going to avoid the CBDC because that is a red line that once you start using that, right? Um, it's going to be hard to go down the other track once you get right. you know, down, once you walk far enough down the CBDC path. And businesses don't even, so take, like for things businesses with, don't even uh, take cash anymore. You know, there's businesses that I go to that they won't let you pay in cash anymore. Like cash is, it's on its way out, unfortunately. Yeah. So, I mean, people have to get serious about what they're going to use. If they rule out, if they get rid of cash, what are they going to use instead? Are you going to go back to bartering? I mean, some people might, some people might try and do Bitcoin or crypto. Um, you know, there's a lot of different possibilities, I guess, but people need to think really seriously about how to not get entrapped in the CBDC. Because I mean, once, I mean, the, a lot of, not a lot, well, some people have said, and I think it's accurate, that the CBDC system is more of a slavery system than it is a financial system. And um, once you allow that to be the center of the economy, it's going to be hard to hold on to your freedom, the freedoms we still have, I guess I would say, at this point. Um, so... You know, that's not necessarily COVID's fault, but they cite COVID as accelerating it. And, right. you know, it's just one push of this broader effort to digital to make everything digital, the right. digitalization of everything, not just the economy. I mean, obviously, that's a big one that everyone can see um, and that's going to affect everyone, but it's everything. They want everything to be online and digital. And why is that? Because it can be surveilled because data is the new oil and you know, whoever controls all the data you're pumping out by having to do every part of your life online, you know, it's, it, I mean, it's just getting really out of control at this point. One of the th uh, things I think was most important that I did in 2020 was I wrote an article about the National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence and in how in 2019 uh, they decided that everything, um, uh, all of these things needed to change about the American way of life in order to remain competitive with China. That's what they said. They said the only way to maintain military and economic hegemony globally is to um, basically adopt all of these things that China has adopted but go beyond China because we have a smaller population than China. What do I mean by that? Um, Chinese people, a lot of them live in mega cities. They use apps for everything, right? So they're generating more data uh, than anywhere else on earth in theory. This is basically what they say. Sure. Yeah. And, and this national security commission, by the way, it's composed of the biggest names in Silicon Valley, the intelligence community and the military. That's who is saying this. Um, and the head of it was Eric Schmidt for people that are familiar of with Google him. fame. Yes. Uh, who is now being cited, uh, as the second Henry Kissinger. So that's, that's a lovely um, title. Yeah, yeah. Um, so not, not one on I'd old, want. On the old CV. 
<laughs> yeah, he's pretty proud of it by the looks of things. And actually wrote a, a book with Kissinger about um, the role of AI and the future and governance and all of this stuff, government by, by AI. And, AI but, scares the fuck out of me. Yeah, so I, let's, you know, let's, let's talk a little bit about it then. Because okay. basically this, this thing from 2019, they were saying, for example, uh, Americans have to generate more data per person than people in China are generating per person right now because the U.S. has a smaller population than China. And how do they do that, we said, uh, or th they said. Uh, we do that by um, phasing out what they call legacy systems. What are legacy systems per this group? They're things like cash. They're things like in-person doctor visits, things like private car ownership. Um, and, you know, that's just the beginning of the list, really. It goes on and on and on. Um, and so I wrote about this in 2020. And now, of course, you know, we're hearing about the electrical vehicle revolution. Not everyone's going to be able to own a car um, and all other sorts of stuff like this. I mean, it's all part of the same agenda. COVID was part of it. And in that 2019 document uh, that I'm talking about, they said, we're going to make our first foray into healthcare. And then COVID happens and, you know, you had to do online doctor's visits and all of that stuff. They want that to be here to stay. And now you have Silicon Valley uh, teaming up with Big Pharma. Um, you know, Google and GlaxoSmithKline are doing joint ventures to inject people with nanotechnology that, quote unquote, modulates the central nervous system, meaning it, like, tells each of your nerves what to do. Uh... Well, and then you have people you know, like Elon Musk we, we being like, just, brain we, chips we, for fun. <laughs> we used to just have, you know. like, good old aspartame for that, you know? You wanted your fucking nervous system to, <laughs> to you know, do something <laughs> without you prompting it to do it. You know, you just chug a couple cases of Diet Coke and let the aspartame sink in. You'll be twitching and shaking before you even fucking know it. Sorry, I had to add my double-digit <laughs> IQ yeah. take to the situation there. Go ahead. <clears throat> Sorry, I'm getting over a cold, so. That's okay. <sighs> Yeah. All right. So we better you know, wear we better wear masks just to be safe. Are you wearing a oh, mask yeah. right now? <laughs> no, no, I want to breathe. Thanks. Okay. Fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> yeah. You're so old school, Whitney. You're so old school. I know. Some people will get mad at you for it. Uh, uh, want to know? For not, I don't. What's next? You're gonna want to sleep. I know. And eat. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, I'm sure that'll be on the chopping block someday too, or you'll have an app to manage it for you. Yeah, back, um, back to AI. I was just listening to, again, my double-digit IQ take here on things. I was just listening to Lex Friedman the other day, and, like, I listened to him talk about artificial intelligence, and I'm, like, I think that's, I think listening to him talk about it is even scarier than, first off, you know, we had dumbass Elon Musk do this uh, presentation a couple weeks ago, wherein he rolled out this robot that looked like it was from the 1960s compared to, like, what Boston Dynamics and stuff was doing. Which prompted me to watch a lot of the Boston Dynamics videos, which was not a good idea because no, it's not a good their idea. <laughs> robots are basically fucking. I mean, it's basically like Skynet at this point. I mean, I, I can yeah. I can draw a straight line between the Boston Dynamics. I mean, and these robots, they're doing fucking somersaults. They're jumping over things. They're opening cans of beans. They're fucking like doing very complex tasks that most like live human organisms like cannot cannot do cannot do to save their own life so i'm like holy shit so then i'm watching that then i went up listening to this lex freeman interview about something completely different but they get on the topic of artificial intelligence and of course he's like you know <laughs> i can't do a lex freeman impression but he's like he's like it is it is the most uh i just find artificial intelligence so beautiful and the complexity of the systems and the details and the 
vulnerabilities and the variables. It's a, it's an infinite neural network of beauty. And I'm just like, we're all going to die. Like, what are you talking yeah. about? You know? <laughs> well, I think people like Lex Friedman, a lot of these guys uh, that, that promote AI have ties to either who you mentioned earlier, Elon Musk or Peter Thiel, um, who have a long history of financing a lot of really creepy shit to say the very least. Friedman loves um, Elon Musk. Yeah, well, the, these guys are all, you know, part of the same club, I would say, to an extent, um, in terms of, like, their ideology. Um, and, and there's a big push for this. I mean, Elon Musk has talked about it, too, that, oh, there's going to be human-machine symbiosis and stuff, right? And that's part of what his, like, Neuralink thing is about, even though most of the monkeys they tested it on died. So, you know, just let the guy that's known for exploding cars put a chip in your brain. Makes perfect sense, doesn't it? And uh, he doesn't really seem to know what he's doing. Let, I'll just say that. But, yeah, I mean, in, in the least morbid way possible, there are many, many, many times when I think, man, I'm glad that I'm 40 years old and not 10 because I those extra 30 years that I'd be around. I'm really not interested in, I'm stoked on like where I am and what we have, you know, got a, got a smartphone, you know, stoked on that. Got a nice TV and a computer and we're doing a podcast and technology's dope and it fits into our life in a nice way. But man, I'm really not interested in seeing where things are a hundred years from now. I don't know. It just, uh, I notice all these little, just these tiny little, I don't know what to call them, like infringements. Like, I, you know, again, I went to go buy a sandwich the other day, and they're like, can we have your email address? And I'm no. like, no, you Fuck can't. No. Yeah, tuna sandwich. <laughs> That's my fucking email address. Tuna sandwich at whitebread.com. Make it happen, you know? Like, you don't need my fucking email address. Like, there's all these, like, <laughs> there's all these little, like, infringements. Again, too, the, the, the cash thing is, is another thing, too. I went to one of my favorite salad places in, uh, <clears throat> in Montreal month or two ago you know no cash accepted so you roll in with some canadian dollars no food no nothing you gotta you gotta have a digital you know digital footprint of a fucking chicken caesar salad that you order like that kind of stuff and people just see that you know i love people are just like yeah like things are really uh, evolving things are really getting good you know like and it's like no, it's no, so no. convenient yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and you know it's just I see every once in a while Whitney. Prison's Pe also convenient, <clears throat> right? Because in prison, you just sit on your ass and people bring you food and you got a toilet right there and right. you don't have to do shit. That's also convenient, isn't it? So what we're basically having is a, a prison being built around us and people are marveling at how convenient and it I is. See people but laugh. you're under constant surveillance and you have no privacy and you know you'll own nothing and you'll be happy soon enough uh, but BlackRock will own everything or people like them will own everything and they'll dictate what you can and can't do and what you can and can't think at some point it'll get there mm. and I mean is that the kind of world we want well I guess there's some people in America that are content with that as long as they have like well, I don't think, Netflix and beer I don't think they or get whatever it. I don't think they get it. I think, like, I've seen people literally laugh about the fact that, like, oh, I was walking around in a Macy's, and I picked up a North Face jacket, and I was looking at the price tag, and then I put it back, and then I went home, and I opened up my web browser, and I got an advertisement for the same North Face jacket. Isn't that funny? <laughs> and it's like, well, there's some real fucking questions there. Like, 
how did you know how did that happen right like yeah. people just think they're amused by that it's just like oh my god what kind of nefarious shit is going on behind the scenes yeah well the, the, what they're trying to do is you know well to not go into too many details and sort of give like a broad summary i would say that ai is being created to treat most of humanity as a herd of cattle to be managed and to have them distracted with you know mindless crap uh while peop the people you know in charge are organized criminals what do, what do, what do you what kind of artificial intelligence algorithm do you think the literal worst people in the world would make mm, to do not you know good. you know it, it, if the groups in that run things are all all they care about is holding onto their money and their pet really their power right forever you know that means uh, a boot stomping on your face forever and it's getting to the point where they want to use technology to make it so that people cannot even cognitively think up ways to challenge their servitude in the future yeah i mean literally i don't want to be like a sensationalist and i don't want to use like you know a dumbed down example even though you know i can't really comprehend what it's going to be like but it just seems like but you can what, comprehend it's, it's going to be bad. It right? seems like we're on a road yeah. of a thousand steps toward eventually winding up uh, like like humans did in the Matrix. You know, just a person being totally. plugged into a system with no consciousness yeah. and used for their energy as batteries. Like, what do you think the metaverse <laughs> is? You know. Hey, oh, stop, Whitney. God, Jesus well, yeah, I mean, they're saying the metaverse. First of all, when you look at it, I mean, it's just so dumb because the graphics, first of all, are awful. I mean, just awful. I mean, they're like as bad as like when N Nintendo Wii first came out. That's yeah, what the yeah. graphics of the metaverse right now in 2022 look like. So that's not a big selling point. And uh, but anyway, you know, they're saying stuff like once life gets so bad in the real world, you'll want to be in the metaverse. That's fucked up. They say stuff like that. I, I mean, I did a video showing the headlines and like the the articles and stuff talking, saying this kind of stuff, the selling points for the metaverse. And it's basically like life on Earth is going to get so bad you'll want to be in it. <coughs> yeah, that's <coughs> that's fucking I'm really tired of coughing. It's a oh, yeah. Well, we can wrap it up if you want, but I'm just going to say, no, like, no, no, it's fine. I'm just <coughs> I'm, I'm sorry to you and your audience that I'm like coughing along still <laughs> oh, they don't care most but, of them are sitting at home smoking cigars smoking joints drinking brandy crushing beer cans on their forehead burping belching i belched right. during the middle of my last podcast i didn't even know it. it's just such an absolutely low class environment here you're classing up the joint today <laughs> don't worry about a little coughing you can, you can do whatever you want you can make whatever noises you would like uh everybody will be cool with it but <clears throat> All right, yeah i mean we, when you think about it that way that really is the metaverse, right? Your brain is plugged in somewhere else, right? That big, long metal spike that goes in through the back of your head in the matrix. And your body is being used, you know, as a, as a resource, as a battery, as a commodity. And your brain is just elsewhere. You know, your brain is in this digital world, you know, under the guise that it exists. And it's like, wow, you can really draw a straight line from, like, you know, Roblox, to there, right? It did always baffle me, though, that the graphics were so shitty and that these things have caught on, like, so well. Imagine when the graphics get good. Like, people are really just going to, like, you will basically, like, what do people want from life? They want, like, love. They want to have things. They want to own things. 
Um, you know, they want food, they want sleep, they want sex. And like at some point you're literally going to be able to like take your body and like insert it into some kind of fucking like chamber or like virtual reality thing, whatever, that is like going to give you the impression that you're eating. It's going to give you the impression that, you know, you're being loved by somebody in the metaverse who looks totally different than they do in, in real life. There's going to be all these things that will entice you to stay there. You know, there's even going to be sex toys that, you know, give you the stimulation of sex without the pesky issue of needing to have a partner, you know, (laughs) going out and having to buy an apple martini for somebody or whatever. Like it's going to be really fucking frightening. And once people latch onto that, I mean, think about how often you use your phone, right? I'm on my phone all the time. It's sick. I catch myself. It's perverse. Like I'm walking down the street, my fucking head's in it. Other people's heads are in it. Everybody's got headphones on in the city. It's like, we're already one step disconnected. Once the metaverse starts to take hold and significant amount of resources are being dedicated toward just the concept of keeping you in it, where I think, Oh man, that just that frightens the shit out of me. It's it's not good, Whitney. It's uh, it's not good. It's not going to be good. No, it it's not. So uh, here's why I think it's gotten to this point. Um, I'm going to throw some history out you at you. Hope that's cool. So of course. Uh, let's think of the Rockefeller family, going way back. Uh, these are guys that in the early 20th century, uh, Standard Oil got broken up, but they're like, that's not going to be the end of us at all. And so they start funding stuff that forever shapes the healthcare system, uh, that forever shapes our education system. And specifically in the case of the education system, what they wanted to do is recreate um, the education system to basically train an obedient working class. Right. So the entire structure of American education changed from that point on uh, to be like it was in the inside of a factory that these billionaires like the Rockefellers owned, right? At the same time, the Rockefellers, not to pick on them, but they're a good example. Um, at the same time they're doing this, they're some of the biggest bankrollers of eugenics in the world in the early 20th century. And this doesn't stop there. Uh, they, for example, finance what become uh, the basis of the Nazi eugenics program in World War II, the Rockefeller family. That's fact. Uh, mainstream media will even begrudgingly perhaps acknowledge that is true. Fuck the mainstream um, any, media. We're, well, we're <laughs> proclaiming it's true right now. Fuck them and well, fuck the Rockefellers. Well, the, uh, what I'm saying is there's plenty of evidence for it, yeah? Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, you get to the end of World War II, the Holocaust, eugenics, all of that comes out, and then you have the guy uh, at the UN is put in charge of UNESCO, His name is Julian Huxley. He's president of the British Eugenic Society. Um, The UN, of course, has a very close affiliation with the Rockefeller family. They actually donated uh, the money to buy the land that the UN sits on in New York and among numerous other uh, acts of or or donations given to the UN. Anyway, the head of UNESCO, uh, the first head of UNESCO, who's actually Aldous Huxley's, uh, Huxley's brother, by the way, um, not only is he head of, uh, head of the British Eugenic Society, he's head of UNESCO. He says uh, in his uh, one of his speeches charting out the vision of UNESCO, we need to make the unthinkable thinkable again, talking about eugenics. Yeah, that's 1946. Roughly 10 years later, he writes a book, uh, I think it's called New Bottles for New Wine. 
he coins the term transhumanism and basically says that the merging of man and machine is the new eugenics. Yeah? This is in, you know, the late 50s. From there on, there's been a group of very powerful and influential people who have either financed or, you know, influential scientists also in the mix here, um, who have been pursuing that mission to make the thinkable unthinkable again. Um, But this time it's um, about merging man with machine or gene editing people. So it's not the eugenics of yesteryear. It's about changing the genetics of people while they're alive uh, or gene editing babies, all of that stuff. Um, There's an obvious continuation of that. So why do I bring up the Rockefeller family and all of this and how they wanted an obedient working class? This same group of people, including the British Eugenic Society and their cousins, the American Eugenic Society, where people like uh, Margaret Sanger were, one of the top guys at the British Eugenic Society who was a big influence on Julian Huxley was, is a famous author. He's a lot more than that, too, though, uh, named H.G. Wells. And H.G. Wells predicted that there would soon be two types of humans. There would be the upper elite class that were tall, attractive, and intelligent. And then there would be a squat, dwarf-like class that were the workers who ate bugs. Starting there. to see where where I'm where where this is going. Um, Unfortunately, yeah. yeah. So I mean, if you can get people to go along with this technology to a certain extent, what they're going to sell it to people as is this is human augmentation. Yeah, but these people that are bankrolling a lot of this science, uh, their view is make a docile, obedient working class, basically make two species of humans, the workers and the elite, and make it that big of a difference. Because the big problem for them (laughs) has been, uh, okay, we want to treat our workers like shit and, you know, milk them for everything they're worth and go back to sort of the robber baron era of like the 19th century industrial revolution where like child labor and like no workers rights at all and stuff like that you know how do we uh, keep these people from asking for a piece of the pie we want to maintain our power influence and be in control of everything forever so we have to make it so the workers can never challenge us again how do you do that these are the kinds of questions these people have been asking for like a hundred years and now they have all this technology in their hands and people are like, oh, well, this technology is just about convenience. Yes. It's about making my life easier. No, yeah. it's about luring you in and you're going to be cattle for these people. And they're literally going to make you into cattle. Even just like on a broader scale, when you talk about politics in general without going into this dystopian, you know, end of the world, which is, you know, approaching on or ahead of schedule. But even just when you talk about the world of politics, the notion that there's people out there that think this person is doing this for me. This person cares about me. (laughs) It's just like, Oh my God, you poor thing. You know, like how old are you? 18? Like, have you not figured it out yet? You know, it's just, I don't know. And, and I guess it comes with age or, you know, for me, it came with experience too. Um, But, you know, some people don't really ever figure out that, the world is not as uh, 
persona centric as as many people think it is you know many people think these things are being developed for my convenience and there's no you know to be honest with you there's no better display of this misunderstanding of how things work than you know activists and protesters and marxists that are constantly advocating for um you know advocating for uh, like a state-planned economy uh, or, you know, further involvement by the state in the economy or the end of capitalism while continuing to reap. Well, a lot of it right now, a lot of it right now is what? The end of oil, right? That's yeah. what a lot of the, the protesters are doing right now. Like yes. the one that dumped soup on the Van Gogh painting, right? Yeah. Well, Just stop oil. Who bankrolls that group? The Rockefeller family. Huh. Isn't that weird? Why would the oil barons want to eliminate oil? Well, uh, as I mentioned earlier, they're not just oil barons. They're also uh, really into reducing the amount of people on the planet and, you know, eugenics. So think about it. Um, We're about to go through what is obviously, in my opinion, a manufactured energy crisis that did not have to happen. And policies are being made to intentionally make it worse, particularly in uh, the West or the developed world, right? Well, that would sure explain people's aversion to nuclear power, wouldn't it? I mean, I'm also happy to chalk it up to just being fucking dumbasses, but the idea that, you know, a country like Germany isn't going to embrace nuclear power at a time when the country is in complete dire straits is insane. I mean, that is... yeah. I don't know. It is insane. Let's talk about Germany for a second. Let's talk you had, about Germany. You had Germany's, a... yeah, you had Germany's foreign minister not that long ago say, "I don't care what the German voters think. I want to deliver for the Ukrainian people," quote unquote. Yeah. So she's saying she's her, she's not working for the German voters. First of all, yeah, that's a big admission, but it's important. So obviously, this policy is not being determined by what's best for German voters. Something else is determining it. Okay, they're not taking Russian gas to help Ukraine, but you know who is taking Russian gas? Ukraine. Ukraine is buying gas from Gazprom and has been this whole time. Why is Europe not doing it to help Ukraine when they're like sending all this money and weapons over there? By the way, according to Reuters, only 30 percent of the weapons the West is sending to Ukraine stay in Ukraine. Where's the rest of it going? Clearly, there's a bunch of fuckery going on. No one's interested in getting to the bottom of it, but it's pretty obvious is what's happening is an effort to hollow out the Western economy. Okay, so what happens when you reduce the amount of energy and you ration energy? Because ultimately, this is going to, they're folding, this, it's really obvious by now, the EU is folding this into the, the, the so-called green agenda. There's really nothing green about it, um, but they're folding it into the green agenda, uh, which is about, um, it's well, it's going to be about rationing energy from here on out. Yeah, it's not going to go back to the way it was before, and they're not going to go back to Russian gas. And obviously, the Nord Stream explosion facilitates that to an extent. But what happens when you ration people's energy? If you can control how much energy a household can use, you are controlling not just how much economic activity that household can engage in and how much wealth they can generate. How many kit? You're also uh, deciding how many, how big that family is, how many people it can support, how many kids can that couple have. Yeah. Yeah. That's what this is about. 
population control yeah a lot of it is i mean if you if you look at people the elite if you want to call them that uh there's no shortage of them saying there's too many of us meaning people like you and me on this planet yeah well jesus and they frame it as an environment thing okay of course but you know it's a lot more complicated than that um and I would say that the, you know, if you look at the financing of a lot of the environmental movement today, it goes back to oil men that were tied up either with the Rockefellers or like, you know, eugenicist type people Uh, like Maurice Strong, who's considered the father of climate change, Rockefeller guy through and through Canadian oil man. Uh, And, you know, he basically promoted this idea that it's always regular people's fault that the that there's environmental issues, nothing to do with uh, the corporate polluting, nothing to do with uh, dumping heavy metals in the ocean, nothing to do with, you know, any other of of other issues, deforestation, what have you. No, I mean, and there's so many ways to basically reveal that what we're being told about the green agenda is not this is why. This is why it's, it's not just, so it's baffling. You know? It's baffling to me that like people don't understand how an issue like climate change can be you and look, okay, mm-hmm. I'm not Mr. Um you know, I believe that humans are affecting the climate, right? The question is Oh, I'm not to, saying they're to, not. What I know, I'm wait, saying well, sorry, the, go the, ahead. The the point is that like the question is to what degree and you know, are the are the responses both in measure and in scale, um, commensurate and pragmatic to deal with the issue as it stands, right? And I don't understand how people can't see that this issue, specifically climate change, is going to be leaned on to shoehorn in anything that anybody in any position of power wants to get it's almost like they're like fucking magic words you know well yeah here's climate change here's climate change activism today it's scream about the problem none of these people talk about solutions not even greta thunberg why is that because they don't want you to look at the solutions at all they want you to you know these people to scream and yell we must do something we must do something now Something must be done immediately. We don't care what it is. Just do it. That's basically the line from these people, right? Yeah. So, okay, why are they not complaining, for example, that the people that the UN put in charge of climate change solutions are insane criminals like Mark Carney, Mike Bloomberg? These are the people that are, like, in charge of their climate change solutions for the United Nations. Okay, Mark Carney is Goldman Sachs, and then he was a central banker for England and Canada, if I'm not mistaken. He came in to rescue HSBC after they got caught laundering money for drug cartels, Um, among numerous other stuff. This is the guy that you think cares about saving the planet right now? Right. Um, Or Mike Bloomberg, for example. You think he just all of a sudden just loves the planet so much? Yeah, what possible motivation other than just pure, you know, trying to help out? Again, goes, this guy's trying to help me. This guy's trying to help us all. Like, no, it's not. Everybody's just trying to help themselves. Well, here's some of the solutions that the Bloomberg Carney team at the UN are pitching. (laughs) the, The organization they've created... 
that was announced la- at last year's uh, COP26. They're like climate, the UN Climate Change Conference. Um, you know, it, it's GFANS, the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero. <clears throat> what GFANS suggested in, an, in a report they released around the time of COP26 was, um, by the way, this is co-chaired by Mark Carney and Mike Bloomberg, yeah. Um, they say, um, basically, we need to merge... Uh, the IMF and the World Bank with private Wall Street banks that make up our alliance. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, whereas in the past, the IMF comes in and offers a loan package and says, you have to enact these policies to pay off your loan and stuff, or you have to privatize these assets and sit and give them over to a multinational foreign corporation yeah, they and impose, stuff like that. They impose their will as a part of the uh, loan. Yes. So out. now instead of opposing, imposing the will of, you know, the, the biggest countries with the most influence of the IMF, like the U S it's what the bankers want. You're basically turning the IMF into the tool of uh, wall street banks. Yeah. Can Is I... that something that you think people on the left would be all about? Um, you know, because before, as I recall, progressives and people on the left would say the IMF uses debt imperialism to enslave the developing world. Um, that's actually pretty accurate. So, OK, so you're taking that uh, what U.S. military documents call a weapon of unconventional warfare, the IMF. They actually do call it that in a 2008 army document. Um you're taking that and you're taking it from being the weapon of U.S. empire to making it directly a weapon of Wall Street. How's that going to go for the developing world? You think that's going to help them solve climate change? Of course not. Or it's going to help them own nothing be happy. I think it's pretty clear. Let me just uh, – can, can I just say something about the IMF real quick? Of course. I was in D.C. when they held their meeting. You know, they, they just had their uh, annual meeting, the IMF. And I was in D.C. for other business, but I had a day where I was out and about walking around and I walked past where the IMF meetings were taking place. Right. So the environment in D.C. is basically a bunch of self-righteous people in suits thinking that they're, you know, important and like, you know, changing the world and whatever. Anyways, that's pretty much like the vibe I get from D.C. Anyways, people being, you know, carted around and trucks with diplomat license plates on them and it's just ugh, I, I really dislike uh, DC but I was just there and I happened to stumble onto the IMF buildings and was just checking out the vibe of <laughs> yeah just check I, you know I took some photos whatever I took some video but like you know I was going to put some stuff up on my Twitter but I, I decided against it but now that we're talking about it let me just say there is a very uncomfortable and grotesque vibe around th- – there was around this uh, these meetings that they were having. The people were – the people that were coming in to these meetings were dressed in $10,000, $20,000, $50,000 suits with twenty-five or fifty on the wrists, all of them, okay, all of them. These people looked like the elite of the elite. You know, it was people coming in from other countries. I think there's 90 member countries. You know, they it was a level above the already dressed up pretentious 
DC vibe, the likes of which made me very, very uncomfortable. And I'm not trying to be dramatic. I'm not trying to like, you know, I'm I'm not trying to make a, a scene where there isn't one. It was noticeably disturbing. Everybody had private security. Everybody had a driver. Everybody was showing up in luxury vehicles. Everybody was wearing a Rolex. Everybody was, you know, dressed impeccably. It was, the security was just insane. There was security all around all of the buildings. You know, look, I guess you have to have security when you're bringing in ambassadors and diplomats and stuff. But like, you know, it was so it just felt like out of the buildings it was emanating that there were nefarious things taking place under the guise of doing what's best for the peons. That was, if, if I had to describe it just by looking at it, Sounds just by right. watching people come and go, and then later, you know, kind of uh, feeling out the vibe in, in, in a couple of... Uh, uh, couple of lounges where some of these people were afterwards still wearing their credentials. The vibe was grotesque. At least that's what it felt like to me. Now, I'm obviously a little bit different than everybody else. But, like, you know, I don't know. And, by the way, not for nothing, but all these fucking diplomats and their drivers were illegally parked. And I know that sounds like a stupid kind of fucking thing to bring up, but, like, that shit fucking annoys me. You know, like, if you want to help out the common person, okay, fucking, I, and by the way, it prompted me to read an article that like 25% of these guys pay their parking tickets only, people with diplomat license plates, all right, so you want to help the little man, pay your parking tickets, that's the first thing, all right, let's start blocking and tackling, you know, but like, it was just, it felt as though they were above, I don't know, I don't know, Whitney, it was, you had to be there, I guess. I'm not sure if it sounds like I'm even making sense, but it was just a really no, it's, it, grotesque it's, it feeling. No, it makes plenty of sense. I mean, it's it's just like the same type of hypocrisy you would get going to any of these climate change conferences. Right. Uh, where everyone flew in on a private jet right. and they have a huge security right. detail and blah, blah, blah. But that's because, you know, they're designing all the regulations you're going to live under, but right. they're not going to live under them. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And people are, are just, you know, delusional at this point if they think they're doing it for them. And it's all based on a lie, you know, um, and people continue to believe the lie that, um, you know, our representatives, our president, they represent us. They work for us. It hasn't been that way for a very, very long time. You could probably argue potentially ever in the United States. I'm trying, right? I'm trying to read how... Um... Bloomberg just called in an article just called the IMF. You ready? The guardians of the world economy. That's how they yeah, referred that's, to That's the, fun. The, well, they they want to make it owned by Wall Street now. Uh, that's what, you know, Mike Bloomberg wants to do with Mark Carney. The guardians and, of the world economy. Yeah. Yeah, they're also pushing to change global financial governance. The big guys behind this are uh, this push, by the way. Larry Fink, who reiterated the stuff about the World Bank and the IMF being run by Wall Street um, at the Clinton Global Initiative that relaunched for the first time in several years, so just a couple weeks ago. Um, and he said it again last year. He's uh, one of the guys on this G-Fans thing, by the way, Larry Fink. Um definitely very influential in these in these circles and in setting these policies and it, it, it's probably going to happen they're probably going to get what they want because who's stopping them no one um and people are acting like the un represents people that's totally insane uh the un is um 
even by the admission of their own director generals, it went under uh, what they, what Kofi Annan at the time, who was in charge of the UN, called a silent revolution, uh, or maybe it was quiet revolution, I can't remember the exact term, uh, where basically they start uh, representing the corporations, uh, the multinational corporations, basically the oligarchy, the powers that be, whatever you want to call them. Uh, yeah. And there's there's speeches of this but like i said earlier they've been for example the un has been tied up with families like the rockefellers since it was created in the 40s so it's really not that surprising but people think you know this is representing us and they're working for the best of the planet but no they're working to they're working for their bosses to enslave the planet for the benefit of the people that are running the show right it's now. just like it's, and, um, it's like who are you who are you people again you know like i just watching these people yeah. like who who are you? Like, I don't recognize any of you fucking people. It, and that's it reminds a bad me thing. of this picture. Yeah. It reminds me of this picture where like Hillary Clinton was campaigning and she went in some like regular person, like uh, apartment complex and her face, when she like looks into a regular apartment, I mean, she looks like so startled <laughs> and like shocked because uh, they, they don't live in this world. These people don't live in this world at all. No, they, they, don't. they definitely and, don't. And that's a great way to characterize it because that is what was evident just by just by watching them, just by watching their vibe, just by watching, you know, how they interacted with like, you know, the the staff, you know, the the regular like hotel staff or the lounge staff, you know, they do not live in this world. And it's uh, that's a great way to characterize it. You can, and you can feel it, too. I mean, I'm guessing that most normal people would just say, all right, well, there's a guy with a nice watch. He's probably important. You know, I've obviously I'm not world famous, but I've been around billionaires. I've been around, you know, politicians. I've been around some people of prominence. And this was just a different type of feeling around these people, the IMF people. It was just a different type of feeling. Like, I don't know. Like, I, I watched a woman get picked up in a a woman who was I'm not sure what brand it was. But, I mean, had to be dressed and carrying, like, with her purse and stuff, at least $50,000 worth of apparel. I mean, it was insane the way this woman was dressed. You could tell it was extreme luxury that she was wearing. I watched her. I watched a single soul Mercedes-Benz, um, like, one of those, uh, I don't know what they're called. I know the Dodges are called sprinters, like vans, like, basically like a limo van almost, get picked up. I watched the driver get out, come around the side of the vehicle, open the side door for her, and I caught a uh, glimpse of the inside. And it was un- – and I've been in limousines. I've done the whole thing, you know, Vegas, fucking – I've you know, I've been in some nice whips. The inside of this thing, flat screen TV, champagne, like, and it just looked like it was on another level. And it was just her in this, of course, fucking like diesel burning Mercedes Benz that she's getting carted around town in. And I was just like, holy shit. I'm like, there, you know, there's something going on here that, you know, look, if you're the, you're the, you're the, you know, VP of sales for Merck and you need to fly into DC to do some lobbying or to attend a conference, you know, maybe you get a first class first class commercial ticket and you know you wear like your nicest suit and whatever and you put on your your uh your nicest watch maybe even you have a rolex you rock that whatever this was just luxury and just overall like pomposity on a scale that 
was noticeable to me, which was very strange. Maybe it was because it was DC and there was like Secret Service and shit around, you know, so maybe I'm kind of imagining some of it because I'm not always in DC, so I don't have the pulse on it real well. Or maybe my spider senses are right. I don't know. I don't know. What I what I do know is that there's a, you know, you're talking about, you know, how this looked different to you from other, like, you know, soirees of fancy people you've right. been around, right? Okay, so I think when you get into the global financial elite, that's very different. Because they're the ones that run, you know, well, there's global governance, right? Yeah. Politicians and all of that, and think tanks, blah, blah, blah. And then there's global financial governance, right? <laughs> Which is stuff like, you know, the Bank of International Settlements. Right, stuff like right, that. yep. Okay, so maybe we see regular people like you and me see the faces of the people in the global governance crowd a lot, but we don't really see the people in the other crowd very much, right? Right. And who do you think's running the show? The people that make the money, that print the money. Yeah. So, I don't know. I think it's definitely a different tier there, and there's a reason we don't see that that stuff really and to bring it back to epstein i think that's you know one of the reasons why no one talks about what he was doing before the year 2000 they don't want to get into the financial stuff right at all interesting and yeah, they'd have and you to said he played a Even, role you thought maybe he played a role with bear Stearns. <clears throat> yeah but i didn't get to include that in the book but um i'll i'll give you a a, a quick overview uh before we wrap up here since sure you know, i'm sure people want to hear a little bit about about the book probably and about epstein and i talked more about the stuff in volume one than volume two right yeah, please so do. <clears throat> so you know at some point right in in the late 70s um you know epstein starts working at bear stearns under alan greenberg who's the guy that brought him in and was basically his top mentor there not that long after epstein joins the bank alan greenberg becomes the head of bear stearns during this period of time the legal counsel for bear stearns is william casey William Casey in January 1981 becomes CIA director under Reagan and ostensibly uh, leaves his legal work uh, behind in the trusted hands of someone that he thinks is competent. Yeah. Two months later, Bear Stearns is in major legal trouble. Well, about to be. There's an SEC investigation about insider trading. It involves the Bronfman family, which is a very big part of volume one. Uh, and Epstein uh, got reported to the SEC as being involved with that insider trading at Bear Stearns to some extent. And instead of really going through the motions of being investigated, Epstein has to leave Bear Stearns under circumstances that are odd. <clears throat> yeah, to say the very least. So, um, you know, whoever Bill Casey put in charge of that, probably his, you know, portfolio, his clients, right? right. Uh, probably advised Bear Stearns to handle it that way. Okay, so that's like one degree of separation from that, uh, which is, you know, pretty interesting. But anyway, what's more interesting is what happens after that. Epstein leaves Bear Stearns and becomes what he describes as a financial bounty hunter, right? We've talked about this before. He says he was both finding and hiding looted money, which means Epstein has an intimate working knowledge at this point already of the offshore financial system. And definitely has a working knowledge of banks like BCCI um, at that period. The Bank of Credit and Commerce International, for people that aren't familiar, just basically a private intelligence apparatus masking, masquerading as a bank. But what's interesting is in this exact period of time after he leaves Bear Stearns, he takes on Adnan Khashoggi, an arms dealer, as a client. 
And during this period of time is when Anand Khashoggi is basically being used uh, by the numerous intelligence agencies he's connected to to put what later becomes known as Iran-Contra into motion. And the guy that managed his finances in this period of time is Jeffrey Epstein. Yeah. yeah. So beyond that, who, who are some other people that take on Adnan Khashoggi as a client at the exact same time? Two people really close to Bill Casey who also happen to be sexual blackmailers and sex traffickers to an extent. Um, Roy Cohn becomes Adnan Khashoggi's lawyer. <clears throat> and Robert Keith Gray becomes his PR executive guy. Um, and Robert Keith Gray and Roy Cohn... Uh, we're working directly under Bill Casey and the Reagan 1980 campaign. And of course, before then, as I, I mean, there, these three guys are on the cover of volume one of my book for a reason, Robert Keith Gray, Bill Casey and, and Roy Cohn. Um, the, the sexual blackmail component uh, of Roy Cohn's career and also Robert Keith Gray's is very significant. Um, in the case of Robert Keith Gray, I mean, he was, he was blackmailing congressmen um, and setting up congressmen with teenage boys and drugs and all sorts of stuff. Um, so anyway, these are the people swimming around Adnan Khashoggi at the same time. And Jeffrey Epstein is one of the ones that gets plopped in there. So that's why. Oh, hello. Yeah, I'm here. Hello, hey, Chris. Yeah, I'm here. Can you hear me? Maybe it's on your end with hey, Chris. Yeah, I'm here. Can you hear me? Hello. Are you still there? Yes, I am. Hey, did I cut out? How much did you? How much did you miss? Nothing. I I heard you the whole time. Oh, right on. Okay, it went out for me for a second. Sorry about that. Okay. Yeah, it's okay. yeah keep going. You can pick up. Right so where you left off. yeah, so basically, you've Epstein engaged in this like financial shady world with with top intelligence people at the time setting up Iran Contra stuff and involved in. Uh, the savings and loans crisis of the 1980s, among other things. And that's why it's no coincidence years later, a lot of alumni of Drexel Burnham Lambert, like Leon Black, Ron Perlman, end up all around Epstein. It's the, they've been together for a long time, those guys. So anyway, in the late 1980s, uh, this period of Epstein's career sort of starts to come to a close, and he gets involved with Leslie Wexner and also a guy named Stephen Hoffenberg. And why he's involved with Stephen Hoffenberg um, he's, he's helped set up, uh, what is one of the biggest Ponzi schemes in us history at towers financial at the same time, he's involved with Leslie Wexner, who just before he teamed up with Epstein, Leslie Wexner's tax attorney was going to testify to the IRS. And the day before he was due to testify to the IRS, he gets shot in the face in broad daylight. It's a mob style murder. Jeez. And the, the police documents about that murder, it's all about Wexner and organized crime. I replicate that report in full in volume two, by the way, at the end of the book for anyone that wants to read the source document on that. It's very enlightening. So anyway, this is where Epstein is at this time. Yeah. It, then through the early nineties, you know, he, he meets up, he formally teams up with Ghislaine Maxwell in 1991 begins dabbling and, and sex trafficking in this period, the towers financial Ponzi scheme implodes in 1993. Hoffenberg is arrested. Uh, the grand jury proceeding, uh, has Jeffrey Epstein named as the mastermind, but instead of you know being taken down, his name is removed from the case. Instead, Jeffrey Epstein, instead of going to prison like Stephen Hoffenberg, he's going to the Clinton White House. The first person to sign off on his Clinton White House visit, Robert Rubin, who up until that point was the head of Goldman Sachs, which, by the way, was a major accessory to Robert Maxwell's financial crimes that imploded in 1991. So Robert Rubin signs him off on his first um, visit, 
1993. His next visit is for a White House historical fundraiser that's supposed to be um, about Hillary Clinton changing the drapes in the White House, but there's actually something else going on there, a lot of controversy in it, so much controversy uh, that it ends up in Vince Foster's quote-unquote suicide note. So that's Epstein's first year at the Clinton White House. After that, he starts meeting with a guy named Mark Middleton, who's at the center of one of the most damaging scandals of the Clinton era that really no one knows about anymore. Uh, it was called Chinagate. Hmm. Uh, I think that's actually a misnomer, but it's actually much worse than that. Basically, uh, Vince Foster and Hillary Clinton engaged in espionage where they sold uh, major state and military secrets uh, to Israel, and then Israel sold them to China. In the early 90s, this is part of why uh, Foster got, uh, you know, is no longer with us, I guess, uh, to put it that way. Um, <laughs> but Mark Middleton uh, was questioned by Congress. He pleaded the fifth 28 times, including Jesus. to the question, are you acting on behalf of a foreign government mm, right. oh or entity? Um, and oddly enough, uh, Epstein meets with him like 15 times in like, a year and a half, Mark Middleton. Um, and no one in mainstream media in the U.S. is interested in why that might be, even though Mark Middleton was at the center, the literal center of this Chinagate scandal that was basically about um, the Commerce Department being used to illegally take campaign donations for the Clintons from foreign non-U.S. citizens, foreign people. Um, and in exchange was basically transferring sensitive military technology to China. And the uh, Chinese military intelligence was involved, but also Israeli intelligence was involved, which is where, you know, Epstein probably comes in. And all other sorts of crazy stuff was going on there. Um, anyway, no one really seems interested in getting to the bottom of that. But then no one really knew the extent of those meetings between Epstein and Mark Middleton until last December. Uh, last December, a UK uh, outlet called the Daily Mail obtained White House visitor logs for Jeffrey Epstein. Finally, what was thought to have been five visits ballooned to 17 and pictures were obtained of Jeffrey Epstein shaking Bill Clinton's hands in 1993. No one in the US media touches this story. That's weird. Yeah. No, it's not What's true. even weirder is when you look into Mark Middleton, um, in early 2001, uh, Republicans in Congress were trying to investigate him specifically. This Mark Middleton was an aide to the chief of staff. He's not like a big guy, technically, right. at the White House. Right. But who, who steps in to cover Middleton's ass? It's not the Clintons. It's George W. Bush. The first time George W. Bush invoked executive privilege was to protect Mark Middleton, to keep documents right? about Mark Middleton going to Congress. And this is just weeks before 9-11. And, of course, after 9-11, no one gives a fuck about Mark Middleton, right? <laughs> uh... So, obviously, there's some crazy shit going on with Clinton in the 90s, and this is the same time when Clinton, or sorry, when Epstein is involved in relocating Southern Air Transport, the CIA airline that was going... For, to Mena, Arkansas, into Latin America, carrying drugs to Arkansas when Bill Clinton was governor of Arkansas in the 80s during Iran-Contra. That same airline, Epstein moves it to Columbus, Ohio, Miami, Florida, on behalf of Leslie Wexner, who's tied up with organized crime, right. provably. Yeah, and instead of having Southern Air Transport go from the U.S. to Latin America and back, it starts going from Columbus, Ohio, to Hong Kong. 
what are they running? What are they covering up? It's obviously something. I, I try and explain what I think it is in the book, but it's it's mental, dude. Uh, there's something going on there. But anyway, basically, you have Epstein's trajectory. Once he gets to the Clinton era, he should have been taken down for the Towers Financial Ponzi scheme, but they pinned it all on Hoffenberg, who was obviously responsible, too. I mean, don't get me wrong. But instead, he goes and he gets involved in the most controversial fundraisers of the Clintons during their presidency that are clearly masked for other types of insane corruption. I mean, even the guy, the other guy at the center of this in the 90s, the head of the Commerce Department, Ron Brown, he dies in the most suspect, suspect plane crash like ever when all of this is starting to come out to light in 1996 because he agrees to cooperate with the investigation. And then, uh, you know, he's found with a bullet wound in his head in the plane crash site in Croatia. Definitely weird. But anyway, all this stuff comes out about Mark Middleton and Epstein. Last December, this May, Mark Middleton is found hanging from a tree by an extension cord around his neck and a shotgun wound to the chest. Also it's known ruled, as natural causes. <laughs> it's ruled a suicide. He somehow hung himself and shot himself in the chest with a shotgun at the same time. Jesus Christ. Um, and a judge prevents, pretty much immediately prevents all photos and media, everything uh, of the death from being released ever. And there's no coverage of this in no, the U.S., except no. in local Arkansas Big media. Big surprise, right? Yeah. So um, there's a lot there. But, you know, so Clint, he's involved in financial crimes while Clinton's in office. Clinton leaves office. Epstein sets up the Clinton Foundation. He does. That's what the Africa trip and all that stuff was about. He was setting up the Clinton Health Ac Access Initiative and the Clinton Foundation. He... According to his own defense lawyers in 2006, uh, came up with the Clinton Global Initiative. This is the guy that created the Clinton's post-presidency political slush fund and his HIV-AIDS program. And not just for him, also for Bill Gates. Wild. They share a science advisor named Melanie Walker, who's all into transhumanism <laughs> and brain chips for people oh. to bring it full circle. Oh yeah. So the Epstein stuff, I'm telling you, they just want you talking about the sex crimes from 2000 to 2006 because you walk out of that little box they've made for you. It gets crazy as fuck really fast. And the craziest shit is the Mark Middleton stuff. I mean, that shit is beyond. I mean, basically, you're looking at the stuff like Gary Webb wrote about in Dark Alliance where, like, the CIA was bringing in uh, crack from Latin America through Mena, Arkansas and destroying the black community this looks like they were flooding gang zones with cheap Chinese weapons at the same time uh, because, well, I don't want to get in too much of it, but a lot of this revolves around um, uh, most favored nation status, trading status for China and the U.S. and the Clinton administration, that particular policy, um, and the Commerce Department, the banning of, of Chinese weapons for sale in the U.S., but they get smuggled in somehow. I wonder if that CIA airline Epstein moved between Hong Kong and Columbus had anything to do with that. Um, but there's a lot of, I mean, there's just so much more to come out. And I'm just like a mom that lives in Chile and is like, you know, I, I can write about stuff. I can dig stuff up and put it into a narrative. People understand. I can source it. I can cite it so people can follow up on it on their own. But like, I don't have the resources that like the New York Times has or any of these guys have. 
they don't want to touch any of this stuff with a 10-foot pole. And people need to ask themselves why that is. Oh, yeah. I mean, in the, in the world of finance, we ask the same questions because, you know, we see things a little bit differently than the mainstream financial media. And that's it. Well, you know, the question is why? How come Whitney Webb can dig all this stuff up? Well, obviously, you're brilliant, you know, and so give yourself some credit. Well, um, I think it's more that I'm not for sale. And right. I uh, just want to know what the deal is, because if organized criminals run the world, I don't want that to continue. I have kids. No, thank you. I don't want them to live in this world, especially where they're trying to do this like creepy transhumanist gene editing. You know, the kids will eat the bugs stuff that they're rolling out in some parts of the world already. Like, no, 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 thank you. So I'm obviously trying to it's, do something about it's it. It's totally dystopian. I hate to keep bringing up the Matrix again because it's such a contrived like comparison. But you know, you think about like no, but it's an yeah. accurate one that's <laughs> accessible. You so. think about like you know the what does he say? Like we're the last of like the the purebreds from Zion. You know, like and you start talking about like gene editing and shit, and it's like oh my god, like it's wild. Look, the book is. One Nation Under Blackmail, The Sordid Union Between Intelligence and Crime That Gave Rise to Jeffrey Epstein. The author is Whitney Webb. Uh, you can get it on Amazon. You can get it from Trine Day. T-R-I-N-E Day is the publisher. Um, it's got four and a half stars on Amazon, probably soon to be five stars. Um, I'm just reading some of the reviews casually this morning. and uh, Oh, really? I haven't looked at them myself. So. Oh, yeah. one I forget what one guy said. Let me see if I can find it. One guy is like, this could be the kill switch in The Awakening. I'm like, holy shit. All right. You know, this could be the kill switch <laughs> in The Awakening. It depends on our willingness to begin where we are and consciously dismantle the criminal element underpinning government. Yeah, you've obviously shook up the world for uh, a bunch of these people that have read the book and have reviewed it. Um, read slowly. Take notes. This is research, not a movie. Um, so, you know, Check the book out. Please go out and buy it. Is it 544 pages? Volume one is 544 pages? Yes. Jesus yes. Christ. So so you wrote probably like a thousand pages total, eh? I did. Yeah, that's about it. But I, like I said, they're important pages. And this is sure. something people are going to waltz through. It's not meant to be a quick read. I did, I did it thorough, so I don't have to do it again. You know what I mean? Right. Once it's down, it's down. So, yeah. So I'm trying to map out the current power structure we have now, really, um, you know, how we got to this point, I'm trying to map out that part from, you know, the origin point I decided to use, which is Operation Underworld. So the 40s until um, like, you know, before the 2008 financial crisis, that's about what I was trying to cover because I don't want to have to go back and do it again, you know? Oh, my God. <laughs> and I don't know if I'm like, if I'm getting soft or if you've just unearthed like some crazy shit since the last time we've talked. But I mean... It's really, I can't wait to read it uh, slowly. And yeah, I'm happy happy to send you a copy. Oh, I'm happy to buy one. Very happy to buy one. Oh, okay. If so, you want. And I'll put a link in the uh, in the podcast description too so people can just go to on. To be and, honest, I just want people to read it more than like selling books. I'm interested in people taking the time to, to actually read it, you know. So uh, I should say too, there's going to be an audio version probably next month and the oh, cool. ebook uh, should be out by the end of this month around the same time volume two comes out on Amazon. Awesome. Awesome. Well, listen. Yeah, and if you want both books for a less price, lesser price, uh, you order from Trine Day, the publisher. They sell as a bundle, and they're shipping both volumes right now, so you can get volume two from them now without having to wait. Oh, awesome. Okay. 
great. Mm-hmm. So best, probably the best thing to do is get it from the publisher then. Yeah, probably the best. Mm-hmm. Awesome. All right. Well, Whitney, thanks so much for taking a couple hours. And uh, I'd love to have you back, you know, when my piss-stained pants dry from uh, <laughs> <laughs> from this episode, assuming I'm alive. Uh, I'd love to have you back <laughs> okay. on sooner than two years from now, you know? Yeah, that sounds like a plan. Two years probably was too long because a lot, a lot has gone on. Yeah, that's right. And congratulations on the uh, on the newest addition to your family as well. Thank I meant you. To say that at the beginning, and I forgot. So, Whitney Webb, ladies <laughs> no and gentlemen, thank you so much. We'll talk to you soon. Hello. Hey. Oh. <laughs> okay. Do you want to say bye? Oh, sorry. I thought. Okay. Yeah. Of course I do. Uh, bye, and thanks everyone for listening. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea what I'm doing with these podcasts. So you know. All right, Whitney. Thanks so much. Talk to you soon. <laughs> yeah. Bye-bye. All right. Take care. Bye. <laughs> Uh, that was about as awkward as it would be if I was actually talking to a smart, intelligent member of the opposite sex in person. You know, just like, uh, uh, uh hi, hi, do you, uh, bye, I mean, uh, hello, I mean, uh, congratulations, uh. All right, fools, I'm out of here. Thank you so much for spending two hours with us today. I hope uh, you guys feel, well, it's an odd feeling of depression and, uh, and just, yeah. Jesus. Fucking Whitney Webb. Incredible. Buy the book, all right, fools? This podcast brought to you again by my friends at JM Bullion, my friends at Masterworks, my friends at Market Rebellion, George Gammon at Rebel Capitalist Pro, Sang Lucci and Wall Street Jesus over at the Steam Room, and of course my friends at the Doomberg Substack. I'll see you soon. Peace. <laughs>